forever knowing, not knowing about Jesus, my family told me as soon as I could learn about him. Um, I've, I've never, I don't ever remember not having him in my life, but uh, you know, the first song I learned was Amazing Grace, and my, my grandma always told me that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins and accept him into your heart, then one day you will go to heaven. I don't recall ever not knowing that, but the difference was that in my three-year-old mind, it was all perfect for me. I had nothing to fear or worry about. There was no unpleasant murmurs of, yeah, I heard she was a Christian from the back of the class, even though I think I did believe it. Like most things in the childish age, it lacked a sense of reality. I didn't fully realize the kind of devotion and love and commitment it takes to be a Christian until in the last three to four years or so. And even when I've, I've thought I'd known something, life snaps at me and sin tempts me with its sinister gaze and time and time again. One thing I've particularly struggled with is finding peace in situations beyond my control and just uh, letting go and letting and, and trusting that he'll put me right where I'm supposed to be. And he's proved to me that he was in control this past year so much with everything that's happened. I can look on my whole 13 years and think of all my experiences and how many times I was in the right place at the right time to meet this person that changed my life. I can look back at my seemingly chaotic past and realize that the most important things that have ever happened to me have happened only because I got dead opposite of what I wanted. Even though I'll never know everything about God and about my future, he has shown me that my life and all of the lives around me are in his hands. And that is why I've decided to act in obedience to what it says in the Bible and say publicly, yes, I believe in Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for your time. I grew up in a single-parent, fatherless Christian home, and I first asked Jesus into my heart at a very young age, though I'm not fully convinced I was genuinely saved at that point. I always remember going to church and would always go to church camp every year growing up, and when I was a teenager, I always went to youth group and was even on the youth worship team and such. At the age of 16, something in me changed, and I began to extremely rebel against my family and God. I would even pretend to get dropped off at youth group and go in the front door and sneak out the back to go participate in my sinful activities. I lived a life of willful, uninhibited, and unapologetic sin for about 10 years, enslaved to various addictions and immoral and abusive relationships, living in constant chaos and drama that I craved, and I was proud of it all and rather pleased with myself. However, God never abandoned me, no matter how much I tried to run and distance myself from him. About seven years ago, I really started to slow down on my destructive behaviors, but I still wasn't following the Lord. The story of my true salvation is pretty unconventional, to say the least. So unconventional that I'm hesitant to share it, but I feel I should share it anyways. In early 2014, when I thought I had my life pretty together, having a job, a house, taking care of my kids, etc., I went out drinking one night and got an OWI. This was about three weeks before I was set to finally get off probation that I had been on for like five years. Needless to say, I found myself with a warrant for my arrest for a probation violation again, and I was potentially even facing prison time and losing my deferred judgment. This caused me to go on a downward spiral for a couple weeks, and I was staying at a friend's house instead of my own for fear of getting caught by the police. I felt like my life was over. I felt like I had worked so hard to get my life back together all to just screw it up again and throw it all away again. And I had really hit rock bottom at that point again. <laughs> One night I found myself sitting alone in my friend's kitchen crying and broken when I suddenly cried out and said something to the effect of, I want my daddy. When I said that, I suddenly saw, heard, and felt a rushing wind come through the east window and immediately and strongly felt the presence of God consume the room. Then I asked him to speak to me. He immediately led me to a Bible website on my phone and, I, and spoke the verse Romans 13, 11 strongly into my heart. Now it is high time to awaken out of sleep, for now your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. I thought, wow, God is here and seriously telling me that right now is the time to wake up and get out of the darkness that I have been living in for so long. Like, wow, this is real. I can't even explain what I felt in that moment. 
He continued speaking to me through his word for the entire night, verse by verse, and I hung on in anticipation. The third verse he gave me was the parable of the lost sheep, you know, the one where he leaves the 99 in search for the one that was lost. And when he finds her, rejoices more over her than the ones that were never lost. I truly feel that that is exactly what he did that night. He left the 99 and searched for me and found me and revealed himself to me in a way that I couldn't possibly ignore. It was like a switch flipped and the blinders were suddenly off. For example, when my friends came back into the room, I found myself suddenly disgusted and sickened at this sinful conversation going on around me. Conversation that a few hours before I would have happily participated in without batting an eye. Sin was suddenly revealed to me for exactly what it is, eroding wretched evil that kills you. At one point, I decided to get up and walk to the bathroom, and as soon as I shut the door, I fell to my knees and immediately broke down into cleansing tears, and it was then and there that I gave it all to Jesus. All my tears, all my pain, all my hurt, all my everything. I only spent about an hour in the bathroom, but in that hour, I feel that I was made completely whole. In fact, the verse that he revealed to me at the end of my hour in the bathroom was in Matthew 14, when all the people that were sick were brought to him, that they may touch just the hem of his garment, and those that did were made perfectly whole. There's more that happened during my time with God that night, but in a nutshell, is that I finally knew without a doubt that God really loved me, like really loved me. And that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God. And I began to look at the world so differently. I could see God in everything, the stars, the sky, the trees, the clouds, the grass, my children's smiles, just everything. And I can never unsee it. After that day, I thought everything would be forever perfect and miraculously changed, especially me. While there were some dramatic changes that have lasted, after the in initial intense feelings for my conversion wore off, I still struggled with some things for a while, and I have also gone through a lot of hardships since then, like losing my grandma in 2015 and the extreme struggles of this past year that a lot of you know about. The difference, though, is that before Jesus, these things would have completely crippled me, and I would have gone back on a destructive downward spiral, but God won't let me do that again. Now I have been able to go through these things with the Lord and hang on to his promises to get me through. One of my favorite verses now is Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you over. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God doesn't promise that we won't go through hard times, but he promises that we will never go through them alone and that he will use everything for good. So no matter what, I can always hang on to him. During my time in sin and darkness, my grandparents, my mom, and my sisters, Jesslyn and Mary, and the rest of my family never gave up on me and never stopped praying for my salvation. And also many friends and even people that I didn't even know, some even members of this con congregation. And for that, I'm, ever, I'm forever thankful. Though I was once far away, I have now been brought near. I was once a captive, I have now been set free. I was once lost, and I am now found. I was once trapped in darkness, but God has now rescued me and brought me into his marvelous light. I was once alienated from God and an enemy, but now I am reconciled and holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, because while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me on the cross and saved me from my sins. Good morning. So here's my testimony. I was raised Lutheran, and in high school, I went to a vineyard church. I was a troubled youth and turned away from faith shortly after moving out. I lived in darkness, denial, and rebellion until the summer of 2011. At that time, I feel the Lord came to me and allowed me to see the truth. This happened at Polk County Jail after ending up in jail again. So <laughs> after that, I was no longer morally okay with the life I used to live and became making changes and attending church regularly. I realized that I was a sinner and needed to invite Jesus into my heart and stand firm in that decision. I knew there was a long road ahead, but at least I knew the right path to take, which was to give up everything and everything I knew and start over with Jesus. My favorite verse is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no man can boast. 
I like this verse because it points out the truth that there is nothing that I can do to earn favor from God. It is only because of his grace that I'm saved. There's nothing I've done that is good, and I don't even feel like it is my faith in him. It is his faith given to me. Thank you. When I was five years old, I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I want to be baptized to be obedient to Jesus and let people and let people know I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Because of this, I am saved and can go to heaven. I really look up to Gladys Aylward, Mary Slessor, and Amy Carmichael. I hope one day I can serve the Lord by helping orphans like they did. When I am older, I would also like to go to Haiti with the mission team. I am thankful for my parents and all the people who have taught me about Jesus. Two verses that are important to me are Romans 10:9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'm a little choked up. <clears throat> so um, if everybody could bow their heads and just pray over these um, brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you for these brothers and sisters and the gift of baptism. that we can publicly declare our love for you. Lord, we ask for your goodness and blessings to be poured out on them. We pray that you would work deeply within their hearts and soul to renew and refresh them each day. Come guide their footsteps and give them a vision for the future you have planned for them. Today they stand loved and forgiven, freed from sin, within the protection of your kingdom's walls. Father, cover and protect them now. Surround them with your promises. Fill their hearts with joy. May this day be one we all cherish and remember. Amen. pray. Father, uh, my heart is encouraged and warmed by uh, the power of your love as demonstrated in the lives that you have touched and who have given witness to their testimony of their faith in Christ through baptism. And I pray uh, that as we open your word that we're not here to hear from a person, we're here to hear from God. And it is your word, your spirit uses your word to speak through us and we come with confidence that you will speak to us. And I pray that you would to each heart here because you know exactly what we need to hear. And we commit this time to you praying for your spirit's work through your servant for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. I remember with great anticipation arriving at the Great Salt Lake near Salt Lake City, Utah. We opened our vehicle door and got out and the pungent odor struck us immediately. The water is very shallow, the water is very salty, the water is very warm, the water is very stagnant and the water stinks like dead fish at least that was my experience now maybe it changes at different times of the season but that was our experience and I want to tell you that our family was extremely discouraged and extremely disappointed with our visit to the Great Salt Lake because our personal expectation had been derailed by painful experience. 
Oftentimes, those of us who put our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior find the exact same thing happening. Our, our, our personal expectation of what it means to be a child of God is suddenly dashed by painful experience. Whoever said that my family was going to reject me because I decided to take a stand for Jesus? How is it that my kids decide that they're just going to walk away from the very thing that I'm so committed to? Why is it that my peers always insist in making fun of me and laughing at me because I say I'm a Christian and I do or don't do what they don't do and do do? How does that happen? Why is that the way? I didn't know that I was going to suffer through financial hardship. I didn't know I would sign up if that was going to be the case. And then there are these hostilities that we're discriminated against if we name the name of Jesus sometimes. We're maligned and mocked. William Bennett put it this way. He says, expressing disdain for evangelical Christians is the last permissible bigotry in American public life. The, perser- the, the, the struggle to persevere as a Christian is not a new thing. In fact, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote to a bunch of beleaguered and battered professing Jewish believers whose profession in faith, whose commitment to the Lord was causing them a great deal of conflict and struggle because their family and friends who were Jews and practiced Judaism were making fun of them and the people who were Christians weren't always living like they should and they were experiencing a lot of hardship themselves. But the writer of Hebrews writes to us and gives them some insights, some valuable lessons to encourage them. They become an important source of encouragement and direction for all of us who find it hard to be faithful. And when being faithful seems to be kind of a futile experience. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, where we're going to look at a couple of essential ingredients in the recipe for remaining faithful, even when doing so seems rather futile. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19, and I'm going to read the text, 19 through 25, and then we'll look at these two different ingredients. First of all, verse 19, Since therefore, brethren... We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you say, as you see the day drawing near. Text breaks down pretty easily. Verses 19 through 22, we see the privilege, or 21, we see the privileges of uh, believers. In verses 22 through 25, we see the practices that those privileges should result in. We look at the privileges of believers, and believers are afforded two wonderful, magnificent privileges, according to the verses that laid out in front of us, and uh, because of Christ's death on our behalf, and each of those privileges is introduced with these words, we have, we have. So you see, if you look at at verse uh, 19, it says, therefore, now, The NASB has therefore, or the ESB has therefore first, the the New American Standard, which I'm reading, has since therefore, but the therefore is there for a reason. And the therefore links us back to all of the instruction that came in chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, all up through chapter 10, verse 18, about this priesthood that we have in Jesus and about what Christ has done for us and all the advantages and then transitions us into what now is the not the instruction but the implications from the instruction now what should we do in light of what we know 
beginning with verse 19. You see, in the Old Testament system, only the high priest once a year could enter into the holy place. But what does the text say? Since therefore, brethren, speaking to professing believers in Christ, we have a chance to enter the holy place. Believers, that is the brethren, have confidence, firm certainty, the right to enter into the holy place, which is another way of saying God's presence. Because that's what the holy place represents. Now you have the Old Testament. One time, one person, once a year, could enter into the presence of God. Now, through the blood of Jesus, every child of God can enter into the presence of Jesus. With certainty. We have that right. About a month ago when my son and I and my father were walking up to the gate at the Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City to attend the Kansas City Chiefs game, we came with certainty that we would be able to enter because we had our tickets already purchased. Through the blood of Jesus, every child of God who's trusting in Jesus' death and that alone as a payment for their sin has confidence, has assurance, has the right to enter into the presence of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means ultimately in heaven, yes, we'll be in the presence of God, but immediately it means that we are ushered into his presence in our heart as we commune with him in worship. At any point, at any time, we can enter into his presence, and this access comes as a new and living way. That's what the text says. It's a better covenant mediated by a better priest with better promises from a better sacrifice than all the others. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through uh, 10, 18, okay, for those who didn't, weren't here. Okay? It's a better covenant with a better priest mediated by better promises from a better sacrifice, which leads to a new and living way as opposed to a dead and old way that we can enter into. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. It says, But he, having offered one sacrifice, that is Jesus, for sins for all time, sat down at the... That's the priest that we have. Jesus. So we can enter into his presence. And then it says the text in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, that it was inaugurated, it was originated through his flesh that was the veil. Now I could go on wax, well I, I don't know if I could wax eloquently, I shouldn't say that, but there's a lot of written on that. But let it think about it this way. Christ's flesh was that which needed to be torn, rent in two, to make access in the new covenant to God available to all of us. And this was pictured perfectly if you read Matthew chapter 27 or Mark chapter 15. When the veil was torn in two at the crucifixion, his body was rent in two, opening up access to God the Father for all who believe. And that was the transition. And in that sense, we have access to the Father. Now, right now, you and I can come into the Father. Not boldly, well, boldly, but not arrogantly. That's the difference. The confidence doesn't mean arrogance. It means certainty, assurance. And secondly, we see that we have a, a concerned advocate in verse 21. And he says, since we have a great high priest, how is it that Jesus is a great high priest? He's a great high priest because he has offered a better sacrifice for us. His own body, his own flesh. This is chapter 10, if you look at verse 14. For, for a one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The blood of Christ really does cleanse us from all sin if we trust in him so that we are completely forgiven forever. That's what we talked about last week. But we have this advocate, and now he's a better high priest because he's in heaven interceding for us. He's there praying on our behalf. That's what a priest does. A priest offers sacrifices. Jesus did once for all. Now he's up there praying for us. That's what a priest does. He intercedes for people, and he is interceding for us. Chapter 7, verse 25. He ever lives to make intercession for us. You think it's tough. You think life has got you down. You're on the top of your game. Wherever you're at, guess what? The Son is praying. He's praying for you. By name, before the Father. For your encouragement and for your sustaining, for your strength. For our blessing, God the Father is there. 
We have some friends who recently came down to Iowa State, to the Capitol building. They visited their state representative, the Capitol building. And because they know this state representative personally, because they are from that state representative's district, guess what? They got full access to the state house. Got to go in the house chambers, got to meet the speaker of the house, got to blah, 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 blah. And they have an advocate in the state house, their representative. Every child of God has access to the Father right now. Now, ultimately, yes, but right now, we have an advocate in the Son. And those privileges, the writer of Hebrews says, result in some sort of responsibility and some sort of response. And that's the second part of this text. Our practices as believers were reminded, were reminded uh, that redeemed people are given a threefold, a threefold exhortation. And this threefold exhortation to equip us to remain faithful, and we are commanded and given instructions on faith, hope, and love. Remember that from 1 Corinthians 10 13, right? Faith, hope, and love. Well, here we see them again in verses 23 through 25. And here's the, the first of these three exhortations. We are called to worship. This is my wording, not necessarily the text. We're called to worship sincerely, verse 22. Let us draw near. Now, each one of these begins with let us, let us, let us. Okay, so I love texts like this because then it's not too complicated to, to lay it out. But let us draw near, he says. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. According to the New International Dictionary of the New Testament, this command speaks of believers drawing near to God in a way which far exceeds the prerogative of the high priest in the Old Testament. When our children were younger and I was serving, uh, as I do now in the pastorate, I had a study at the church, and my children knew that they had access at any time. There were a few exceptions. If I was counseling with someone, then they couldn't just borrow. But they, they, they had access. They could come over, and I encouraged them. They would walk in. They would come in. They didn't knock on the door. They just opened the door. This was their dad's place. This was their place. They could come in. They could sit on my lap. We could talk. They could share. Our son even had his own little office set up in the corner of my office with his own books and his own stuff so he could do his own study. draw near with, with con their access was unhindered as children of God our access to the father is unhindered with confidence he says let us draw near with confidence again this is not arrogance this is boldness because this is our dad and he wants us to spend time with him he wants us to join him they drew near my children because in a way that nobody else could, and every child of God is privileged. Now, he gives us a couple of guidelines to govern our approach. We are to come sincerely, it says. With a sincere heart, it means genuine. You see, the Lord doesn't want fake worshipers. In John chapter 4, verse 23, you must worship him in spirit and truth. These, for these the Father seeks. The Father is seeking after worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Not hypocritically, not mechanically. Well, yeah, I did my Christian duty today. You know, I went to church and I even got up and, and I, 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 was, didn't, I was listening to Christian music on the way to church even. So now I'm good to go. I did my duty. No. He wants our heart. Without hypocrisy, he longs for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, we live in central Iowa, right? So uh, 2020 is now the beginning of the, the ramping up for the next general election cycle. And so we're going to be inundated, already begun to be inundated with political pundits and political candidates. And they're going to be spewing all sorts of garbage, in my opinion. They're going to be telling us whatever it is we want to hear. Or whatever it is they think we want to hear, right? God doesn't want to hear what we think he wants us, wants him to hear. 
He wants us to come sincerely. And so if you're discouraged, you tell him you're discouraged. If you're happy, you tell him I'm so pleased as punch. If you're frustrated or disappointed, we can come and just say, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then he's going to tap you on. Yeah, remember, you can't. That's the point. You can't do this. But we come with sincerity. Then we're supposed to come with purity. At the end of verse, he says, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Notice the text says, having our hearts. So this is a state or a condition that continues on based upon a past action. Our hearts have been cleansed. How? Chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. By the blood of our, our hearts, we are cleansed our, our, from an evil conscience. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 9. And he says, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? It is having our hearts clean. We come, if we're children of God, we come into the presence of God as those who are clean. Now, I, I mean, cleansed. I just come in recently and I was just confessing some sin in my life and I just, you know, but I come as one who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, appropriating the cleansing to my current situation. And our bodies washed with pure water. So that I think the picture is of our entire body as clean before God. Our entire person, our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed. Now, uh, you could get into the pictures and imageries in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 and Titus 3, 5 about the washing of the water, the Word, and the Spirit of God and, and all different sorts of symbolism that may or may not be appropriate. But the, I think the long and the short of it is if we come as children of God, we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so we come sincerely, and we come purely. Let us draw near. I wonder, when was the last time that you actually felt like you drew near? You had confidence to draw near to God. What, what can we do in our lives that make that happen? We can set aside time to draw near. That's a novel thought. We can spontaneously draw near. You know, you can, you can draw near to God when you're driving in the car. Just keep your eyes open. You know? We can draw near with spontaneity. We can draw near if, if we're willing to set aside time, if we're willing to search our hearts, search me, O God, and know me, and try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way, the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me. So that I'm sincere and pure. I don't want to come to God as a fake. And we can submit to God humbly. Do you understand that in the Bible, submission and obedience is almost always linked with deeper intimacy with God. In Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17, the, the Lord doesn't delight in, in burnt offerings and sacrifices. The sacrifices of the Lord are broken Spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, I will not despise. We come sincerely. And then share with him openly. This is, this is Hebrews chapter 4. You can write this down, 15 and 16. Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace. Not boldness, not arrogance. My kids never came into my office, uh, usually with arrogance, but they often boldly came in. You know, they just barged right in. There they were. Just come into God. Press into him. In your time and your efforts. Secondly, we're, we're called to cling to truth tenaciously. Verse 23, let us hold fast our confession. I like that word, hold fast. The story is told of a guy who was working on an airplane. He was an airplane repairman, and he was up under the fuselage near the landing gear, but the, evidently the pilots or nobody else knew he was there, and so the plane decided, that were, the people decided they're going to take off. So there he was, and the plane started moving. And he couldn't maneuver himself to get in a position to jump before the plane was going too fast, and so he had to grab onto the landing gear. And there he was, grabbing onto the landing gear during takeoff, during the flight, and as they landed, and they figured out that he was there as they landed, and when they got there, the emergency workers literally had to pry his fingers from where he was gripping. 
Hold fast. Our confession. Well, what do you mean by confession? The confession is the body of truth that we put our faith in. We hold fast our confession, the, this, the, the body of truth that we accept. What we accept is true, which is what God has given to us, but primarily in this context, all that we have in Jesus. Our confident expectation, that's what hope is. It's a confident expectation. Our confident expectation, our hope, is in the pardon, our pardon. Our power over sin. Our peace with God. Our purpose in life. Our permanent position with God in heaven. That becomes, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the anchor for our soul. I'm holding fast. In the storm-tossed sea of life, and whatever storm it is that you're experiencing, and if you're not experiencing one, it's just coming. Okay, You may just be ending a storm, or you may be in a storm, or you may be about to go into a storm, and sometimes there's lulls, but here's the deal. This is what holds us. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I do not have to sin. I know that I am at peace with God even though I'm not even at peace with others or myself. I know that I have a purpose on this earth and that is to declare the glory of God, to live for His glory and to share with others that they too can know Jesus and live victoriously in spite of the mess. And that one day it's all going to be over and I'm going to be with Him in glory. Without wavering, the text says. Hold fast, with confidence, without wavering. That means no shaking, no undeterred by the pressure from your peers. Oh, you got to do different. Oh, you're just a little religious freak. Oh, you're just one of them Jesus people. Punishment from your employer. Well, if you're going to do that, then you're gonna, you might lose your job. Pain from our family that rejects us. I never really forget one day when... I had made a decision that uh, I I'd said, I confronted somebody in my family and they, they, made, they said, well, yeah, that Mr. Religious person there, you know, it was a very painful experience. But here's the deal. In the middle of that, remain unwavering. Don't stop. I read a story about the Coptic Christians. There was a gal with little children and her husband had been killed in a bombing at a church and he was one of the guards at the church and he had redirected the bomber away from the people but he took the hit himself. And this is what this woman said in a quote. She was being interviewed. She says, I'm not angry at the one who did this. Said his wife, children by her side. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you believe me we forgive you wow hold fast without wavering regardless of what the circumstances why hold fast because he who promised is faithful that's what the text says he who promised is faithful I like what F.F. Bruce says our hope is based upon the unfailing promise of God why should we not cherish it when I was younger all three of us, my two sisters, my dad said to us when we were younger, he says, when you're 21, if you're not smoking, I'll give you $100. That's called a, a goal incentive, not bribery, okay? So it's called a goal, this is a difference, goal incentive, you know. So if you're, if you're 21 and you're not smoking, I'll give you $100. When I turn 21, guess what? I got $100. I never doubted my dad's promise. Because my relationship with my Heavenly Father meant that I treasured and I trusted His Word. I wonder, is your relationship with your Heavenly Father such? Has He been proven to you so that His promises are precious and you trust them no matter what your circumstance? That's what I hear the writer of Hebrews saying. It's proven. Now, our wavering comes when we don't know God well enough. He's not proven, so His promise is not so precious. And so then pleasures of the world, persecution, the promise of possessions, perhaps it is some other lure of, of men's praise, that kind of, we hear that louder than we hear the promise of God. So that we lose sight of His precious promises and we fail. As we get to know the Father in heaven, we trust 
him. We treasure his truth and we turn from sin. We are to come with confidence to draw near. We are to hold fast our confession. And finally, he says, we are called to love unselfishly. And this passage is probably the most familiar of these things in the text to some of you. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love in good deeds, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves as the manner of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider is an interesting Greek word because it's, it's a preposition and then the word mind. So according to the mind, it actually means give thought to, give conscious awareness or thought to something. Okay, So we're supposed to actually think about this to understand how we can stimulate, how we can agitate, how we can incite one another. You ever think about that? I'm going to come to church. I'm going to juice these people up. You know? He's a bunch of deadbeats. We need to get going here. I think about that sometimes. Sorry, forgive me, but I think about that. I was thinking, what are we doing? We got the best news in the world, and we sit around like we're the most somber, sober people in the world. Shame on us. I want you to think this week about how you can juice people up, how you can incite people, how you can agitate people. You know, some of you seen on Facebook, on the news, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, the, the, the Philip Matthews guy beating his drum in the face of the Covington High School kids and all that. The, who was inciting who? Well, it doesn't really matter. The thing is, everybody's saying that somebody was inciting somebody. Well, let's incite each other. To love and good deeds. That's the text. That believers are supposed to incite each other to to love and good deeds. Now, I'm going to give you some uh, examples of how I think we can do that. We can do that through our example. When I hear and am with and involved with Karen and Norb Metzler and I see the way that they're caring for people, the way they're encouraging people, the way they're reaching out to people, that encourages me. To do the same thing. When I know that Rod Clarkson is here every Sunday morning preparing the elements of communion for the first service and the second service, that's an encouragement to me. When I know that Ron Carter comes on Wednesdays after he's gotten done driving truck all morning and sets up for a wanna. And Ken Taylor's here moving snow and checking lights and doing stuff that you and I never know about. That's encouraging to me. I like the way Oswald Chambers put it. It is a most disturbing thing to be smitten in the ribs by some provoker from God, by someone full of spiritual activity. So who are you jabbing in the ribs? Who am I jabbing in the ribs? By my example, like, get with the program here. It's our example to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Then there's exhortations, our example and our exhortation. The Spirit of God uses our presentation of the truth of God to make the people of God more like the Son of God. Now, that could be in your family devotions. It could be just in a personal interaction. It could be in some formal teaching setting. But where are we using the Word of God to actually exhort people to live like God? You know, I've had this happen to me a few times, and I need to be better at it. But, you know, you have somebody come up to you and say, Oh, you know, Pastor, I, I need to tell you about so-and-so. I said, Well, okay, uh, have you talked to so-and-so about the thing you want to tell me about so-and-so? Well, no. Well, then don't talk to me about so-and-so until you've talked to so-and-so about so-and-so. That's the Bible. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. You got a problem with somebody, you go to somebody. You don't go to somebody else about somebody. That's stimulating them what? To love and good deeds. Is it a loving thing to gossip? No, it's not a loving thing to gossip. It's a sinful thing to gossip. But we're supposed to provoke each other to love and good deeds. So it's our example or... Exhortation and our encouragement. He says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That means when the church is gathered, be there. Why? Because we need you to be there. 
Because your being here matters to us. Well, I don't get it. You see, the forsake literally means to abandon. To ditch. To leave in the lurch. And that's not encouraging. That's discouraging. And we can offer all kinds of countless reasons for why we would like to isolate from others in the church. But that's just plain sinful. That's what this verse says. Whatever excuse you have. And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. I think the text intimates a couple of reasons for why we should gather. Because our gathering together, as we encourage one another, helps promote maturity in us and in them. Your being here encourages me to be more like Jesus. And hopefully, my being here encourages you to be more like Jesus. That's the plan. Encourage one another. You see, faith in Christ is indeed personal. But it was never to be intended to be practiced in private. Well, my faith is a private thing. Then it's not really much faith at all. It should be personal. But it should never be private. Only. I mean, there's a private aspect of it. Don't hear me wrong. I mean, I sometimes use hyperbole to get the point across. So just try to work with me here. And, and, and you know, if you question it, then you can just ask me afterwards. But here, we come together not to hide, but to heal so we can go out back into the battle. Life is war. We come together to help heal each other so we can get back out on the front lines tomorrow or Thursday or whenever the day is. is. That's why we're there. Don't abandon, but appreciate each other. Isn't it so sad in the church of Jesus Christ? We, send a, we, we wound our own soldiers. I mean, we shoot each other in the foot and the arm and the head. We are so critical instead of encouraging one another through our words and through our presence and through our support for each other's ministries and the things that are happening. God wants us to be encouraging the faint-hearted. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. What about a note? What about a word of encouragement? What about a compliment? You know? I mean, I don't know about you, blesses my heart. I go to first service and Karen's just over there playing the piano and they just call it a hymn. It doesn't matter what hymn it is. She's up there playing the hymn. That's just such an encouragement to me. And we got guys that are volunteering and they go up and they'll, they'll share, they'll open the word and share with us what's going on. When was the last time you went to one of them and said, you know, what you said, I just appreciate how God used it in my life. Instead of, well, you know, I'm not sure the way he, Use, I think he mispronounced that word. You know, I think it's Shiloh, not Shiloh. Like, that really is important. Like, how many of you know Hebrew? Think about it. Stimulate one another, love and good deeds. That's how we remain faithful in a world that is fighting against us. And Jesus says... In the world, you'll have tribulation. And boy, we know in the world, Christians have tribulation. You go to India. You go to Egypt. You go to North Korea. You go to China. You go to America. And Christians are tortured. Christians are maligned. Christians are imprisoned. Christians are marginalized. But be of good cheer, he says, John 16, 33. I have overcome the world. And those of us who are in Christ are overcomers. With him. Our access to God and our advocacy of the Son gives us courage to remain faithful, to draw near with confidence, to hold fast with conviction, and to serve and to stimulate one another intentionally on purpose. Our privileges should produce communion with God that's sincere. What step are you going to take this week to draw near to God? Should cling to the truth tenaciously. I don't know about you, but there's probably some place where you're being assailed and threatened to point that you don't want to hold to the truth. How are we going to care for God's people? You know, as we come to celebrate communion, what we do is we remember the Lord's death until He comes. But what does the death of the Lord until he comes mean to us? It means if you're trusting in Jesus, you have access to the Father. You have, and I have, an advocate with the Father. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
It's the death of Christ in your place, on your behalf, for your sins, that is the only basis whereby you can be cleansed, forgiven, and have access to the Father and an advocate in the Son. And in this death, he paid the price that we deserve to pay so that when we take the bread and the cup, which are symbols of his body broken and his bloodshed, the veil torn so that we can have access into the presence of God. We proclaim his death, but we also empower ourselves by God's grace to keep pressing ahead in light of his death, in hope of his return, so that we'll be with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that everyone here who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior would take time just to draw near to you, to confess sin, to appreciate your sacrifice. And then come and break this bread and drink this cup as a remembrance of all that you've done for us so that all that we have, we can live for you. And those who don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that those who don't give a rip about whether we should be remaining faithful because they aren't under persecution and realize that ultimately someday they will be judged. And we don't want them to be judged harshly. We want them to be part of the family they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, that they might be forgiven as well. We pray in Jesus' name.